Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films and the people that made them and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. Tonight, we're calling this Sam Fuller Night a night dedicated to one of the most colorful, eclectic, and responsible filmmakers that America has ever produced. Helping us celebrate the late filmmaker's extraordinary life and filmography is his wife, Krista Lang Fuller, and his daughter, Samantha Fuller, producers of the terrific documentary, A Fuller Life, currently available on Apple+. Hi, Krista. Hi, Samantha. Hello. Hello, young man. Hello. I thought about you guys today because I was on the picket line at Sony. I had my little sign with a bunch of other members of the Writers Guild. And I have a feeling if Sam was still with us, he probably would have been right out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Always for the writer. You know, he had a 20-year writing career. Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, I, I have to tell of listeners that I have spent the week reading his autobiography, uh, which is called The Third Face. And it's one of the most readable of uh, film autobiographies I've ever read. It, is, it gives you, as Krista has pointed out, a, uh, a study of American history with American film. And I have to say that uh, I learned so much from the autobiography which you adapted into the documentary so nicely um let's start let's start with you krista you were an actress uh in europe uh before you met uh sam uh, how did you get into acting what was your path well i was i grew up in germany and i got a scholarship at a very famous uh, theater school in Bochum with a great director called Helmut Keutner. I was all excited because to be part of a theater company, you are like an employee and you get money for the rest of your life. You belong to that. And my mother who loved movies, you're an, act an actress, you? And she didn't want me to be an actress. And my grandmother was uh, French Huguenot origin. I've got French origin. You know, the Huguenots, they fought the, uh, they were the Protestants in France. And my grandmother, she, her name was Dupré. And a lot of Huguenots uh, were, were hiding Jews in World War II from Hitler because they remembered. So I knew I had French origin and I wasn't allowed my, you know, so I went to a Centre Culturel Francais, a French cultural center. And I saw God created women. And I said, I'm going to go to France. I'm going to leave Germany. I don't want to marry some bourgeois German. Inspired by Brigitte Bardot. <laughs> and I saw that freedom in Brigitte dancing barefoot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I've seen pictures of you uh, uh, at that time, and you would give Bridget Bardot a run for her money. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I never thought myself, of myself as being, I wanted to be a good actor, you know? 
and my audition was the seagull. Was it oh. the seagull or say, um, the Arthur Miller play, I think it was. I forgot, it was so long ago. So I told my parents I wanted to be a, a translator or foreign correspondent, and I had to go and learn my French, brush up my French. So I left for France, and I was an au pair girl. At 17? Yeah. I was 17 or 18. Mm -hmm. Anyway, make a long story short, uh, I was in Alsace-Lorraine in a family. And, uh, you know, the French guy, uh, I see young blonde German. Anyway, I, I uh, had tickets to go to Paris. And I felt my exam on Honoré de Balzac at the University of Nancy. And the train I was supposed to take was the biggest derailment up to this day, like 250 people. And Balzac saved my life. <laughs> Isn't that a crazy story? That is so crazy. Yeah, you were, you were, what were you, like trapped in a, the train? No, I didn't take the train. Oh, you didn't take the train? She no, was meant I, to get on a train. I was meant crash. to get the train and oh. my girlfriend came from Germany and we hitchhiked. You could hitchhike in those days without being massacred. And we said, let's hitchhike from North Sea to Paris. Anyway, make a long story short, in Paris, I took acting classes. I had a regular job as a translator and I took acting classes and Jean-Paul Belmondo's father asked me to pose for him. He made a sculpture of me and I posed for him and I got a lot of publicity and all of a sudden all the directors came out and asked me to be in their movies. <laughs> well, where, where was this sculpting shown? Was it shown at an art festival? Yeah, I've got, I've got photos. Jean-Paul Belmondo's father, Paul Belmondo, was asked to redo the front of the opera and he picked me because I've got a I've got a Greek profile he thought oh so he paid me very little money whatever he couldn't you know he was an artist but the French government the minister of culture asked him to redo and so I modeled for him and the money he paid me was just enough to take a cab to see my then uh, lover you know <laughs> so so, so I was in all the papers and someone said the niece of Fritz Lang. They said I was, I was the niece of Fritz Lang. So I said, no, I, you know, they made it up just to be in the tabloids. You mean the press actually made something up in the, the tabloid papers? That's yeah. shocking. They um, say the niece of Fritz Lang chosen by Paul Belmondo to pose and pictures of me. I've got the pictures, I send them. And, 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 one, of the, and one of the directors who looked you up was Sam? A, a lot of uh, people, no, I had a, I, I worked for Claude Chabrol. Right. I made like two or three films with him. And so you, you started your, you started your, I'm sorry, Samantha, go ahead. I was gonna ask how she got cast uh, in Alphaville by Buddha. So. Godard and Chabrol, uh, Chabrol was the Pope of the New Wave, and Agnès Varda, who got the award, was the, 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 they all started the New Wave, 
to get rid of the cinema of Papa, they call old fashioned cinema. So Claude Chabot and his wife, they liked me because I was very shy. I was supposed to get out of the bathtub and I didn't want to go out in the nude. I, 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 was, I was still there. And so they say, don't worry, we're, we're just going to have a few, a skeleton crew, and we're going to put a lot of soap on you so nobody can see, uh, you know. And this is I mean, in the I movie, asked, this is in the was, movie Alphaville? So then when the film came out, I got great reviews uh, for my little part, sort of a Marilyn Monroe, uh, the girlfriend of a gangster. And in Francois, the local paper, they say, and enfin, and finally there's Crystal Lang, and the film was called The Tiger Likes Fresh Meat, or Fresh Flesh, you know. It was sort of an imitation of James Bond. Oh, so this French. is not, you're not talking about Alphaville, you're talking about a different movie. Yeah, so uh, uh, Godard watched the picture and he said, she's really great. Uh, I would like to use her in my next movie. And so Chabal uh, arranged a dinner with Jean-Luc Godard, but we won't, we want to talk about Sam. Anyway. Uh, How does Sam come into the picture? So I was- Getting close, we're getting there. I was in Spain. <laughs> I had a girlfriend who was Miss South America and her name was Maria Rosa Rodriguez, a bombshell. Gorgeous, Miss South America from Ecuador. And uh, we made our spaghetti at night, like actresses looking for jobs and all of that. And we said, oh, don't go there. Uh, he's not serious. He's never going to make the film. He just wants to, you know, get stooped. <laughs> and so they we gave, were, They gave each other casting couch warnings. Casting couch warnings. <laughs> so I was standing in line at a cinema that's very famous in Paris where they showed American film noir called Le Mac Mahon. And I was standing in line, there was a huge line. And because I was all alone and, and I went into the theater and I saw the film and I said, Which what film was it? What is that, an old, uh, an old film by John Ford? And all of a sudden it gripped me and I was standing there getting, it was like a slap in the face. It was Sam Fuller's short corridor. Oh. oh my God. I was so impressed by that film. I was shaking. And I remember Kafka said, if you want to be a good artist, every work of art has to be like a slap in the face. And that's what it did to me. Wow. So it was Kafkaesque to me. I went out and I called my girlfriend and Maria Rosa and I said, oh, you should go and see that film. She said, well, I met the director, he's here in Paris and his name is Samuel Fuller. And uh, he invited me for dinner and my English isn't very good. Let me call him and ask if I can bring you. Now, did you and, speak any English in those days? Oh my God, yes, I was reading uh, English lit, lit and uh, I'd been I'd been in England as an as a as an exchange student. Oh, okay. So you were multilingual. Yeah, in Southampton. 
where Ken Russell grew up. So when I was 14 or 15, I, my parents sent me to brush up on my English. And uh, so Maria didn't speak English much. So we called Sam and he said, sure, you can bring her. And so we both went. And, and what year I, was this? Maria Rosa Rodriguez. No, no, what, what year? What year was this? 1965, September. September 1965. I, re I remember that because I uh, stopped at the post office and I said my, it was my sister's birthday. I sent her presents. And at the post office close to where Sam lived. And Sam lived over on the wax museum in, he was, his producer rented an apartment for him. He, by the way, was in Paris writing The Flowers of Evil, adapting The Flowers of Evil by Baudelaire. No, oh, nothing okay. to do with it, just the title. Now. Just oh, the title. Well, he was uh, making his own version. Flower, okay. Flowers of Evil he was writing right. for an independent guy called Mark Goodman. And uh, Mark who, Goodman? I mean, oh, Mark Goodman. Okay, got it. Okay. Well, he's dead right now. And he came from a very wealthy family who did goodies, things for the hair. And Mark wanted to be, and he is a, was a Harvard graduate, and he wanted to be an artist. He didn't want to live in America. So his father, so he wanted to produce a film. The, and, and he contacted Sam and said, I want to produce uh, the Flower of Evil film. And it was a science fiction film with nothing but girls and only one guy, a new version of Lizzie Strata, a modern version of Lizzie Strata where women cross their legs and say, unless you stop all wars, we won't have any more sex with you. So Sam was writing it there, and uh, he always had, has storyboards. He does cartoon. He used to be a cartoonist. Right, right. I, I all through the book I see his cartoons. Absolutely. Yeah. And did and you meet, uh, did you meet him for dinner, or did you go over to his apartment? We went over to his apartment to talk about the movie, and he used <laughs> us as a to to read a script. And, uh, and you know, we just wanted to be in the movie, but he was such a gentleman and so kind. None of that sexual aggression or all of that. He was just a very, very professional, very nice man. And uh, I always had to translate what he was saying to Maria Rosa. I see. You know, and, but it, it was not, not for any rendezvous or any, uh, and he, uh, so <laughs> we talked about Ring Ladner. I was reading Ring Ladner in French. And Sam said, your English is good enough. You should read Ring Ladner. Ring Ladner was like, senior was like Sam's godfather with, with Gene Fowler. And, uh, you know, they used to go to Barbara Walter, Lou Walter, speakeasy. And Sam was very young, he was a teenager, and these older men that put cigars in his pocket and, and, and smuggled him in, into the, you know, speakeasy of uh, Lou Walters in New York. And he said, so Sam said, you should read him in English. And I ordered the book for you. 
give me your phone number and I order the book. So you should read them in English, not in a translated, you know. So uh, we went home and I really was smitten by the man and he was so charming and so interesting. And, 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 and I've, I never met anybody like that. Such a great did, storyteller. Did you know many Americans? I bet you didn't know many Americans. Yeah, there were Americans in Paris. But you didn't know many of them? No. Something no, I, I was traveling in the Cahiers de Cinema crowd, you know, movie sure. bar. Of course, of course. Now, for the listeners who don't know Sam Fuller, um, they may know a couple of his titles. Why is it important for us to celebrate Sam Fuller's career? What is, what is critical about this? I'm going to ask this question of Samantha. You just did the document. You did the documentary about your dad. Tell me, tell me why Sam is important to study his filmography. Well, he has such a diversity and is, uh, has, was such a trailblazer to think of the topics he tackled at the time he did fearlessly and was never a sellout, always rooted for the underdog. And uh, his career really spanned through so many decades of American cinema. I mean, he himself was born during the time of silent, the silent era, and grew up discovering the first talkies. But his influence, you know, that, that stemmed from that and uh, that came through in his work from American lifestyle. It wasn't the big glitzy glamour Hollywood films that certain other, you know, filmmakers made. He really took from his journalistic background and from covering historical themes and, and headlines, topics. Well, and all of his films uh, were influenced he, by the tabloids. Yeah, and he made, you know, historical films, but, you know, Westerns and war films, black and white, uh, Technicolor, you name it. I mean, he dabbed in, in pretty much everything. And even though he never per se made a comedy, he always had a great sense of humor streamlining through all of his work. So he's, he's just got such a well-rounded body of work uh, that I think uh, he, he really should be looked into for all the different eras of his, of his career. Well, what, what was critical for me in reading the book, uh, which as I mentioned is such an interesting book, is his starting out as a reporter. And I think the word that comes to mind, he was curious about the world, that he really went out, not only did he work as a reporter in New York, but I found it fascinating that he later hitchhiked across the United States and made money by freelancing articles for papers yep. around the US. So almost like his reporting was paying him his way to learn more about his country. Uh, you know, I'm In a way also, if I may interject, I think right. that's one, one of the likings he took to my mother is that they were both adventurous and passionate about about what they love to do. I mean, which is basically writing and acting and storytelling. And we're ready to leave their home base and set off to venture wherever it took them to pursue uh, that, that love for the arts. And uh, my mother too packed up her bags and left at a young age, my father as well. And both uh, earned a living at a, at a fairly young age, starting right off the bat doing this. The other thing that I found fascinating about his career is 
he was really always his own man. If he didn't like what the, the studio wanted, he—I mean, he did, if he didn't like an idea, he passed on it. I found—I found it amazing that he turned down so many films, like *The Young Lions*, like *The Longest Day*, and uh, very big star-driven vehicles, because he realized that if he made a big vehicle like that, there would be interference from the studio. I, I found it—he—he he seemed to embrace making small, smaller. I don't know if you would call them independent films because they were released by the studio, but he seemed to enjoy making smaller controllable projects that had no interference from the studio. Yeah, he didn't want to go anywhere. It would restrict his freedom of, of telling a story that was true to his heart. He, when he worked for Fox, I know he made some compromises uh, such as in 40 Guns, for example, where he wanted the character of Barbara Stanwyck to be killed at the end. And uh, the studio thought that was too dramatic and too much a downbeat of an ending. The other, the other thing, guys. And asked for her to live. So, you know, he, you know, in that situation, for example, he, he did shoot her, but he didn't kill her. So there were he knew how to compromise, too, in order to get around to telling his story. Yeah, but Zanuck wanted to do a punk roll oh. as a musical with big stars. Gregory Peck, Mitzi Eva Gardner, uh, Mitzi Gainer as a barmaid. And Sam said, no, that's my love letter. And he put his own money into Park Row, made it as a little independent film, his own money. With his favorite actor of all time, Gene, Gene Evans. Evans. Gene Evans. He, um, he, um, he refused to compromise on that picture for the listeners who don't know park row park row was as as samantha and chris chris to say it was an it was a a love letter to the publishing business the the newspaper business in the late 1800s in new york city there was a street i guess it's called park row where all the still newspapers there. were published and it's still there of course of course and uh fox wanted to make it as a musical so he he made the movie for two hundred thousand dollars, and United Artists released it and didn't make any money. But he was so satisfied that he got his vision. I love the whole reference in the book to the fact that he built he had that street built of the whole Park Row street. It must have been amazing. One of the longest tracking shots at to, at that time as well. Right, he utilized right. every nook and cranny of that set, every angle. He just knew how to work it too. By the way, he always came in on budget or under budget and in time or before time was out. So he really, you know, was a um, an efficient filmmaker. In right. That sense. The, now, the other thing I, I learned a great deal in the book was his World War II experience. Now, I, I'd always known he was on Omaha Beach, but for some reason, I thought he was a war correspondent. But I didn't realize no. that Sam Fuller was an infantry soldier with the big red one. He was basically, as he calls them, he was a dog face. Omaha Beach, look at that on 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 Chris uh, Samantha's T-shirt. The Omaha Beach, yep, we're wearing, the big red one. There's from the big red one museum. Uh, I've been there. there. I've I've definitely it's been there. It's an incredible, an incredible place to go and commemorate that awful event that he survived, uh, as you say, in the third wave, 
he wasn't shooting his camera. He was shooting his rifle right at that time. Right. And when somebody asked him why he joined the infantry, he said he wanted to be present in the, the big, what would he call it? The biggest crime story in history. The biggest murder of the, the biggest, century. Biggest, biggest crime murder. story, yeah. Biggest yeah. crime of this, yeah. Century. Well, you know, they asked him when the war was over, if you look at the Nuremberg trials, behind each Nazi war criminal is a member of the Big Red One. And they asked Sam to go to Nuremberg and be behind one of those Nazi bastards and stand behind and they all have the parish. You see, look at the footage. Right, right. And, and, and uh, he wanted to join his brother. He missed his brother, Ray. Who was also at war. He was right. in the secret services in Paris. And he always regretted that he didn't take the, he always regretted. I mean, when he recounts Omaha Beach, and what he was present for, I mean, it, well, Omaha Beach, as we know from history, was a real bloodbath. It was, uh, as Steven Spielberg portrayed yeah. in Saving Private Ryan, as we've seen in The Longest Day. Uh, but the fact that <laughs> I'm reading this and Sam, Sam Fuller is, is on Omaha Beach and he makes it to the seawall. How he made it to the seawall, I have no idea, dodging bullets. And then uh, he's told to report to his commanding officer that the Bangalore torpedoes have blown a hole in the barbed wire and the exit off the beach is ready. So he tells him, you need to go inform your colonel that there's an exit. So he had to run back along that beach under that murderous fire and alert the soldiers that they could now exit the beach. How, that, how he survived that is incredible, but you gotta figure that after serving in combat like that, it would color a lot of his filmmaking because he would not he would not do something that wasn't real. Yeah, as you can see in the big red one, he actually, you know, I mean, Zab, played by Robert Carradine, runs along the beach and, and executes that command that my father was given. Um, it, it's a miracle that he made it to Omaha Beach because he did survive, you know, major battles. Right, North, North Africa, Africa, Sicily. Africa, you know. Sicily prior to that. Yeah. Sure, and sure. The fact that, I mean, he overcame all of that is just really a miracle. And Patton, too. And he turned it down. Frank McCarthy, the producer, I remember he was a wonderful guy. He presented, he said, I'm a gay Republican. <laughs> I, yeah. I know I know who Frank McCarthy is, Krista, because I was at Frank McCarthy's house because I did a chapter on Patton in my book Combat Films. So yes, I met Frank McCarthy. He was a wonderful guy. And wonderful guy, and he wanted Sam to direct Patton. But I, I think that uh, in the book it says that Sam said that he was not a big fan of Patton's. Well, he turned it down. He hated Patton. Patton pissed in the trenches instead of encouraging his his men. Patton Patton was. Uh... Sam's favorite was Terry de la Mesa Allen. And I've been trying to have someone do a film. I'm in touch with the family of Terry de la Mesa Allen, his granddaughter Consuelo. And uh, Terry Allen was such a wonderful guy. He hit the cover of Time at Newsweek. 
Yeah, he was the commander of the first uh, first infantry division, the Big Red One. Absolutely. And when he in the fifties, he was a house guest of Sam's, and John Ford pleaded, "Please, I want to meet the guy. I want to meet the guy." I mean, he was such a wonderful. He was the most beloved general of World War II by his soldiers. He slept on the ground with the soldiers. He was the most humane, and he prayed before each battle, and he sort of had a, a, a SM relationship with Patton. Patton pissed in his trenches of Jeb once. He was angry at, and he was sort of a rebel that everybody loved, Terry de la Mesa Allen. Now, and, that's an interesting um, middle name. Was he Hispanic? Uh, yeah. Interesting, interesting. And to be a general in the U.S. Army and Hispanic at that time was very unusual. Well, he, he was in, from West Point. I think right. he got fired once out of West from West Point. But he was right. friends with uh, Roosevelt Jr., you know. And, and uh, he said when he got the cover of Time and, New Time and Newsweek, I've got the copy of Time magazine, he said, he was very modest, he said, I'm no hero, he said, dead man made me a general. Interesting. Isn't that, Interesting. Isn't that Very interesting? true. Uh, Samantha, um, you were, uh, you and Krista were instrumental in getting this documentary of Fuller Life produced. Who was the one who came up with the idea? I produced it. I was a, pro I was a producer and then I let her handle it. So you Krista produced was it good together. at raising the funds. We really wanted to keep it uh, full ownership of this documentary. And so we did a crowdfunding. So, uh, you know, my father, he, a lot of, a lot of his projects, the rights are owned by somebody else. And so the last thing we wanted to do is make a film about him and not own the rights to it. And so Krista was instrumental in, in making sure we could crowdfund the funds and uh, keep, keep it, you know, in our name and the fuller name. And, uh, you know, I was really inspired for a very long time to, to for this documentary because after my father passed away, my mother and our family friend and editor of A Third Face uh, put many years into getting the book finished, my father's autobiography, and they would read passages out loud. And we always thought what a shame that my father isn't alive to make an audio book of his autobiography. And, um, you know, when it was time for my father's centennial in 2012, we really felt like we needed to do something to celebrate the big 100. And um, making this documentary, filming it in the shack, you know, a place we left untouched since my father passed away. It's like spending time with him in there with all his memorabilia and all his research piled up. Uh, just was a, I mean, calling for, for a shoot in there. No art department could have ever put such a set together. And uh, just kind of all fell into place really, really nicely uh, for his centennial, especially while we were preparing the shack for filming. Uh, we found over 100 reels of 16 millimeter film under his desk that were untouched. Uh, most of the footage he shot during the war on his spare time had been given to the Academy. They had made a documentary called Vision of the Impossible with his footage that he shot in, at the camps. Uh, 
that was the first film he ever shot with a spell and howl camera. His mother sent him, she sold his book, The Dark Page, to Dole Sloan and Pierce, and it won the best psychological novel of the year. While he was in, on the front lines during the war. And with that money, she bought a camera, sent it to him, with which he filmed uh, towards the end of the war. Now, a lot of that footage was placed at the Academy and made into this documentary, but there were over a hundred reels of film that were left under the desk in the shack unseen. And I mean, magically hadn't turned to vinegar. And uh, we brought him down. I wound through that footage and my jaw just dropped because there for the first time I saw my father on film at the age of 30, smoking a cigar. I had never seen him in motion. I'd seen photographs of him as a younger man, but there he was, you know, in motion, very, very short, but there nonetheless, and I, it was kind of I, I find it amazing given how challenging it is to travel in those days with your gear that he was able to bring home those film canisters he was sending them back there's film um there and he brought the film in belgium and france and germany there there's film from all over europe different places he traveled and it's just amazing that it was you know left there uh, under the desk in a box for all these decades without being, you know, professionally preserved. Uh, just a cardboard box, you know, thrown into there. And a lot of it is the soldiers at rest and clowning around uh, footage he didn't find would be very important to anybody. Um, and well, it sure did wind up being great for our documentary because there was a time to insert it and, and bring it, you know, to, to an audience, finally, and it was just in the nick of time. It was literally as we were preparing to shoot our first guest, Bill Duke, making room under the desk for him to sit, that I pulled out this box and said, oh my, holy moly, what's in here? And he said, well, there you go, kiddo, you know, work how with much, what you got. How much of Sam's autobiography was finished when he passed? Well, it was, there were 2,000 pages. But we had over 2,000 pages and Samantha just had a baby and Jerry Rudis came and he negotiated the deal. And thanks to Jerry, who has the Avignon, who started the Avignon Film Festival and then Avignon, New York, where, where, which Sam and I inaugurated with Jerry. So I've known Jerry for over 30 years. He had Quentin Tarantino there, Paul Mazursky, they all came to Avignon. And they all loved imitating my father, by the way, and, and uh, mimicking <laughs> his, his growl. And so Jerry would read back passages and he, he and my mother really, uh, you know, put it all together so it read smoothly and uh, had a real good flow to it. We had to edit 2,000 pages down to, what, 600? Yeah, it's about 600 pages, 175 photographs. Um, Beautiful, beautifully illustrated. For the li listeners who read film histories, I don't think you can do better than uh, uh, Third Face. Uh, and by the way, I'm I finally read the passage in the book where he explains what the third face is. And I thought, is that that, interesting? Isn't that, that true? Very interesting. It's your own private face that no one sees, that only you know. There's your public face and your, I guess your career face or whatever, but I thought that was interesting. Now, Krista, you know Sam's filmography from top to bottom. Um, 
The first, by the way, the first movie that I ever saw of Sam's, I remember seeing it on television in the fifties, The Steel Helmet, uh, which that was the first. Yeah, another Gene Evans. Another Gene that Evans. Was the first Gene Evans. The, the first, first Gene, Gene Evans. Evans. Yes. He was also had a had was also at war. He he was an extra, and Sam threw the rifle at him, and the way he handled the rifle, he 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 uh, he, he gave him the script, and there was no dialogue. Yeah, the casting for Gene Evans in the Steel Helmet was my father throwing an M1 at him <laughs> to see how he could handle the rifle. Well, I love the fact that um, he was asked, uh, I think, was it Lippert, the producer, asked him to see if John Wayne would play Sergeant Zack. And Sam shrewdly realized that uh, if he cast John Wayne in the role, the movie would be a glorification of war because it would be a gung-ho, you know, kick-ass movie. And that's not the kind of movie he wanted to tell. No, he, they, they wanted him, he wanted uh, John Wayne to, to direct his Green Beret and he turned that down. And then they wanted John Wayne in the big red one. And Sam, I mean, John Wayne has always been very, very complimentary to Sam via John Ford and, you know, his Bad Jack production, a production and uh, Sam's uh, 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 Ray Kellogg, who uh, was a special effects man, gave Sam worked on Shock Corridor and The Naked Kiss, and he co-directed the Green Berets with Sean Wayne. And he was a wonderful guy, Ray Kellogg. He gave Sam for a movie Sam did called Forbotten. Right. Where right. your friend called your friend Paul Anka wrote the song. Right. Our love is forgotten. <laughs> it's well, a last film. It's a last film. And nobody ever had made a film about the werewolves, about the, the young Nazis that were still there after Germany lost. Nobody had made it up to that point. And Sam said, I'll make it as a, for Akio. It was Akio's last film. What's interesting with Sam's filmography is he, I don't think Sam Fuller really embraced the Hollywood star system. Most of his films are cast with terrific actors, but he seemed to avoid getting caught up in the fantasy of the movie star system. He wanted to get re real performances from real actors. I mean, if you look at all of his films, um, he avoided a lot of the big stars, but had great actors. I mean, Richard Widmark, you know, was obviously a major movie star, but, you know, in a movie like Pick Up on South Street, he's, you know, he's playing a pickpocket. He's not playing a big starry role that there was, no, 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 there was really? no, no glamour in Sam's pictures. Sam was anti-glamour. Would you agree with that? Of course. A yeah. diamond in the rough. A diamond in the rough. Now, Samantha, do you have a favorite film of your dad's? Depends on the day. <laughs> How about I love today? them all. I love them all. <laughs> you know, I, I got to say the one that I need to, I mean, I, I love watching them all over and over again. And it's a great way to still be connected to him, even after his passing all these years, because he's so present in all his characters. But for me, the big red one is just a standout because maybe it's the first set I was on as a kid. Uh, maybe because it's so autobiographical, 
just I feel like poor it's a... Samantha was cut out of the big red one. Oh, I'm thinking because I to... didn't even make it into the director's cut because I mean... <laughs> today is Christiane Kubrick's birthday. You know, she sang okay. that beautiful song, da da, in Path of Glory. Christiana Kubrick, Kubrick's oh. wife. Okay. And I was singing a song in the big red one, but anyway, and she that's... was singing a little German song. I love the with Tamar Camel. She plays a little poor German girl after the war, and she sings a song. And I spent three months in Germany just for her to learn that song. All that to be cut out, to be bullied out. Um, and she and she was cut out, and and with Luke Skywalker, which was my idea to cast Mark Hamill. And Sam said we had one of the biggest fights we ever had. He said, "Why would a guy who's the biggest in the biggest grossing film, Star Wars, play second fiddle to Lee Marvin?" I said, "Because it's a great story and a great script, and." I like Mark Hamill because he had that refined face like Lou Ayres in All Quiet on the Waterfront. And that's uh, what Western, he would... Western Front. Yeah. I'll go on the Western Front. Well, sure. Yeah. Now let's let's talk uh, on the little... Western Front. Yeah. Let's let's talk a little bit about the big red one. It sounded like Sam wanted to make the big big red one as soon as he was discharged from the army in 1945. It seems like he's had spent he spent 35 years trying to get that going. Several attempts. Why do you guys think it took so long to get the big red one made? Oh, in the 50s, he even went for Warner Brothers. He went location hunting. And mm. and and he hired with his ex-wife, the wife we had before me. And with uh, 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 Harvey. H Harvey, uh, uh, Harvey. Ray Harvey. Yeah, who was uh, a veteran himself. Uh, yeah, right, who was one of the biggest decorators. Uh, and he, he loved Sam. And when they came back, it was a crazy story because uh, uh, well, his ex-wife and Ray Harvey had a fling while Sam was revisiting. Well, more than a fling, they got and married. And then they got married. <laughs> so that kind of felt the pieces maybe in, in, in the way he describes her in the autobiography he describes his ex-wife as the is not really a woman you would expect him to be with because she was like a party like like the glamour of hollywood she liked the parties it seemed like but she was a a, a formidable artist in her own right she oh. composed music and was a painter and uh you know i she think was, nice, I nice always... arm candy I, I think of her, she was sort of an Alma Mahler character. Uh, excuse you know? me, what kind of character? Alma Mahler, Gustav Mahler's wife, Alma. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. And, Krista, and, you, you, you know all the references that I kind of blow me away how many people you've known over the years. You've seemed to have known most of Europe, most of the US, is, and you know every filmmaker that exists. Uh, I think that- And if, their mother. And the mother and the daughter. And the, <laughs> well, you know, over the years, uh, you she meet has people. A, she has an incredible memory as well. Sam really. was a, Sam was a workaholic, and when he worked so much, you know, I taught French for a while at UCLA. You're a Bruin, you're a fellow Bruin, right? Sure, of course. I was in the I was in the PhD program, and I, since I had gotten straight A's, they asked me if I wanted to be a teaching assistant. So. 
one day I had no classes. I went to visit Joseph von Sternberg, who lived close to UCLA. And then afterwards, I went to see Fritz Lang. Just like that. <laughs> In one afternoon, I had two of the greatest directors. Now, you've been around movies all your life. Obviously, Samantha has always been around the movie business. Uh, the movie business has changed dramatically in the last 30 years. Uh, I'm curious uh, what you both think about the future of film. I mean, considering streaming and the blockbuster mentality, do you think uh, the film business is still as vital as, as it used to be? It depends where all economy is going. Well, we all know the answer to that pretty much. I mean, I, I think that uh, people would always need entertainment. I think people will always need to be entertained. The physical aspect of going out to the theater. And you cannot replace life writers by robots. That's <laughs> impossible. You know, yes, we're all a little nervous about the uh, the AI mentality that you might be able to write a script with AI. Um, it's funny uh, about now it's 30 years ago, Robert Altman did that movie, The Player, where he yeah. would, would with Tim, Tim Robbins, Tim Robbins. And um, one of the actors, and I forget his name, very good actor. He plays the studio executive who says that he opens the newspaper and comes up with story ideas just reading the newspaper. What do we need the writers for? We got the newspaper stories right here. And uh, I thought that was very, very prescient. Uh, I worry I worry that the studios have gotten too much into the blockbuster mentality. Every movie has to be a ho home run. Every movie has to cost $200 million. The only way to fight through the audience to the audience is to do a blockbuster. And that has not ever been the mentality of Hollywood in the past, you know. By the way, what a foresight. If anyone out there, uh, including yourself, remembers a scene in White Dog where uh, Burl Ives uh, shoots darts into the robot of Star Wars and said, you see, it's all over now. This is the yeah. end. <laughs> we should, uh, I know that White Dog is a bit of a controversial movie, um for the list oh, we could spend we could spend 12 hours talking about it well let's talk a little, let's let's talk a little bit about it for the listeners who don't know it uh white dog was based on uh was it a novella or a novel by romaine gary that he yes. wrote first he wrote it first as a short story for right. life magazine it's a true story it's basically a story of a of a, a german shepherd white german shepherd dog that is bred to to uh to attack black people right the nazis used well, it it actually happened to roman gary he found a german shepherd that wasn't white at the time uh, Jean, that's just paramount white named Jean. it named it white dog just uh you know f figurative speaking michael eisner but... wanted to name it uh, jaws on paws jaws on paws <laughs> You know, it's funny, if you mention the idea of a movie about a dog that is trained to uh, to attack Black people, it's a very controversial subject. And, uh, and of course, Sam never shied away from difficult subjects. I mean, he's... He, he loved... He the wanted, harder, the better. He wanted people to discuss and think about it and discuss it in class, in in 
you know, at universities, you know, what's true. I mean, they used dogs for runaway slaves. Those are just the facts. It's a fact. If it were a fictitious film and, and, and if, you know, he, he had made it up, then I could understand why it would be so shocking. But the fact that he's covering, you know, actual events of, of factual things that happen, like a reporter, uh, you know, the, those dogs did exist. He didn't make it up. Well, Sam would never do a story that's made up. I think that because his life was anchored in his original experience as a reporter, he he gravitated toward true true incidents. As I, 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 I think he did make up the fact that the dog belonged to a little girl, though, at the end of the day, in, oh, in okay. White Dog. That was that his, little, his, did, uh, his that irony. Little girl, that little girl looked very familiar. Do, do you know who she is? <laughs> I, I remember my big one-liner that did not get cut. Uh, where's my dog, you know? Uh, which I find, I find so, you know, the absurdity of that situation of a little girl showing up to claim her killer dog. Well, the, uh, the, 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 for the listeners who've not heard about this movie, White Dog was going to be a Paramount feature film. It was produced by uh, Don Simpson, who would go on to produce the, uh, the uh, Beverly Hills Cop movies and other movies. And John Davison, who had just completed Airplane, Wonderful guy, John Davidson. Wonderful guy. guy. But suddenly, the end, yeah. Yeah. I said, finally, Sam has a producer who loves films that he can make other films with. They got along so well. Wait, talk about a a contrast. Talk about Mm -hmm. a contrast for John Davidson. He goes from Airplane, which is one of the funniest (laughs) movies ever made to White Dog, and without getting too much into it, White Dog was was shelved by Paramount because there was some controversy with the NAACP. They didn't want to stoke that, but it was later released in Europe to acclaim, right, right, Krista? It was, yeah. It was actually, life-changing for our family in that actually, sense. Actually, uh, 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 Curtis Hansen brought the deal. Curtis Hansen, who did LA Confidential and other, other fine films, Curtis was one of Sam's disciples with Peter Bogdanovich and they always came to Sam for help. And Sam always gave him a lot of help. And uh, Curtis took care of our house when we traveled in Europe. We've known him since he was 19 years old. And he proposed, Paramount had already invested a million and a half dollars when they bought the, the rights to the, to the book. And they couldn't make it. Roman Polanski was supposed to do it. Uh, then Arthur Penn. And now that Sam had made the big red one, Curtis Hansen, he got other offers, Sam. He was supposed to do an action film in Japan. And Sam got so excited because uh, he knew Roman Gary very well. Roman Gary was the uh, French consul here in Beverly Hills. And as a matter of fact, he got the gig on The Longest Day. He was one of the screenwriters on The Longest Day. Right, I remember that. Absolutely. And, well, he met Zanuck through Sam. By the way, Krista, just just off topic for a second, since, since Sam was being offered World War II movies, to your knowledge, was he ever offered to direct the Audie Murphy movie to Helen Back? Did that ever come across your desk? I couldn't tell you. Okay, because uh, I was curious about that. Well, um, 
let's get back to the big red one. So the big red one is a movie he wants to make literally for decades. How did it end up coming to Lorimar? Uh, Polly, Polly Platt uh, was now Peter Bogdanovich's ex-wife. Right. They were our closest friends. I mean, I've got whole movies with them. We used to meet for meals and Sam helped them so much on targets and other films. And now they were rich. Peter was the hottest director at one point. And Polly said to Peter, our poor friends are starving and we got to help them get the big red one. <laughs> and William Friedkin, uh, Francis Ford Coppola and Peter Bogdanovich had formed a company called the Director's Company. And they called Sam and they said, can you make the big red one for a million dollars? And Sam said, no way can I make, <laughs> you know, people always try to get you they say, uh, he said, no, I couldn't do it. And then the how company- could they, How could they possibly ask Sam Fuller to make well, that epic he, like that for a million dollars? He's he's the guy who shot uh, Steel Helmet in 10 days in Griffith Park. <laughs> but this was not the Steel Helmet. <laughs> this know, is World War II. They thought, hey, maybe you could pull another Steel Helmet off, you know? But he, he did wind up shooting it for not that much more, honestly, uh, compared to what a war, a war, budget movie budget would be so so were the Bogdanovich's instrumental in getting them to uh, getting Sam to the doorstep of law uh, absolutely absolutely they uh you know I like when people are grateful and give back Sam always gives back you know I give back to people I rather give a hundred times back when people help you and Sam was so generous I remember you know I drove with Polly to Werner Fields, who uh, became Steven Spielberg's uh, film cutter right. with targets, with a cans of targets down, down in Van Nuys, you know? And we were really very close in every every way. So I think that uh, uh, Gene Corman came on because of Roger, his brother. And Gene was a wonderful guy, but he tried to save money he traveled with Sam to, we were supposed to shoot it in Yugoslavia. And then uh, they went to Tunisia. I mean, it took years, a few years before Lorna. Well, and and the, principal, the principal location was Israel. They shoot a lot of it in Israel. Yeah. Someone came, Israel and Ireland. <laughs> and Big Bear a little bit. Here in they California. They started shooting here in Big Bear, the, the snow scenes. Now, the, the red, Big Red One was released in a cut that was half of what Sam envisioned. Is, isn't, this, isn't this a movie that has a four-hour running time? They had to cut down to yes. two hours. Yes. Does that footage still exist, Krista? Well, apparently it does because I was so heartbroken. Uh, even though the movie was invited by in, to Cannes, the, the Bootshot version, 1980, people still like it. And they were going to uh, share the Palm d'Or between Kurosawa and the Big Red One, two old masters. 
but anyway, someone vetoed it, vetoed it down who wanted the Klee Marvin role, but I'm, I'm not going to go into that. I don't, I don't, I'm not, mm. you know, I don't go, no negativity. No negativity, but that's anyway, all, but yeah, yeah. Sam was very depressed because what happened is, even though Gene was a wonderful producer, he tried to save money. And instead of hiring a real cutter, film cutter, he hired a guy who was a sound cutter who had no idea and he didn't number the cans or films. Everything oh. was mislabeled, stored in a vault in Kansas. It, it was a total mess because after my father passed away, my mother worked really hard. I worked 20 years to get the film. And you know who came in? Richard Schickel, who loved the old, the butcher version already. When I told him the story, he had a program uh, with Sidney Pollack and other directors, the man who made the movies. And he came to Paris to do Sam, the man who made the movies. And I told him about the butchered version and how heartbroken Sam was while we were living in Paris already after White Dog. And uh, Richard Schickel couldn't believe it. And he and a guy called uh, Richard Schickel and, uh, and uh, what's the name of that night? Oh, yeah. Brian, Brian Jameson, right. who is a big movie buff, who doesn't, they went and found the film in and the Kansas. money in Kansas, in the vault. And it, it was it was really difficult to, for, uh, 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 it was a difficult restoration, but it got made. And, and uh, I was invited with Lee Marvin Swiddle and I, the two, Lee was dead, Sam was dead, <laughs> and all, but all the boys from the Big Red One and Schickel, we all got invited and I got a second red carpet with the Big Red One restored. So how much of it was restored? 46 minutes. Okay, so, so the four hour cut is still out there somewhere. Yeah, it's just the uh, one where Samantha is in. Yeah, she sings a little German song to Mark Hamill. So, do you think in the future there might be a super Blu-ray in the cards for Big I Red One? Believe, I don't think. I so. hope so. Wouldn't that would be great? Yeah, because it's special because of all the war films that a director did. The only ones who, who were really there and stored it in their memory was Sam. And I think Oliver uh, Stone uh, uh, volunteered in Vietnam. I, think he, I mean, he, I think Sam is the only director who survived and went on to recreate the battles on film in the Big Red One and right. relive D-Day. Right, which know? is incredible, which is incredible. Mm -hmm. I, I found it amusing in the book that Steven Spielberg invited Sam to, I guess when they were making 1941, where Sam right. had the cameo, he invited him out to his car and in Steven Spielberg's trunk was a print of Helen Highwater. I thought that was funny. <laughs> no, that was in a different time. Steven Spielberg was making the name of the game. Oh, so it was when he was doing TV. Right. And Sam was in Europe and Barry Sullivan invited me for Thanksgiving. He had a party. And at that party was Steven Spielberg. Oh. And I felt like a fish out of water in Hollywood because... Nobody was interested in the history of their own film. I mean, nobody knew who Fellini was here around there. I felt like a fish out of water. So I was sitting during Thanksgiving, it was raining, cats and dogs. And who was sitting there? Steven Spielberg. He was so excited when he heard I was married to Sam Fuller. 
He said, I've got a print of Helen Highwater in the back of my car. <laughs> <laughs> and I was so relieved that finally there was a young man like that who knew about the history of films. Right, right. And, and it was so exciting. When Sam came back, I said, I met this young fellow. Oh, he was so wonderful. He loves your movies. And I told him all of that. And Sam was not an ass kisser, so we should have pursued our, when Stephen got really hot, he's a really nice man and very, very nice man, very nice and man. And he even named himself Sammy in, in the Fablemans. His name is Sammy. <laughs> Wonder. You think that was a, you think that was an homage to? Uh, I, I don't know. Of he always gives, he always gives hidden homages in AI. He had a he has a scene from House of Bamboo, oh, which is a wow. beautiful film. One of my favorite films of Sam's is Merrill's Marauders, which oh. is kind of I think what uh, what Jack Warner said it was kind of a dress rehearsal for. Big Red One, right? Uh, but it, it it was interesting. The other thing I wanted, I found interesting about Helen High Water um, was that it was kind of uh, a movie to prove that you could make an action movie with a cinemascope camera. That exactly. They had, they had done some, you know, they had done The Robe, which was an epic. They had done How to Marry a Millionaire, but uh, this was the first action movie at Fox with the with the new camera system, the widescreen. Which I found. Well, listen, guys, we have had a delightful talk. You're right, Krista. We could probably talk another four hours about Sam, but I really want to recommend to people to tune in Apple Plus to watch a fuller life. It's a really wonderful tribute to to Sam. Uh, get the book, A Third Face, for a really, really fun read about Sam's experiences all across the board. And thank you both for joining me on Sam Fuller Night. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure. Well, you're wonderful. It's always a pleasure speaking about him. You've been listening to Saturday Night the Movies. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer's Ben Shrewsbury, and we've been listening to Krista Lang Fuller and Samantha Fuller. Thanks, guys. We'll talk soon. <laughs>